Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles. And I'm Carrie Law. And today's dilemma, can finance reduce pollution in times of COVID-19? What are Pocket Dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is Dilemmas at EBRD.com. The Paris Accord would undermine our economy. It is time to exit the Paris Accord. Is uh, the commitment I made that we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, as, of, uh, as of today. The U.S. return to the Paris Climate Agreement in January is a staggering move, one of the first orders under the Biden administration. It promises to commit the United States, the world's second largest emitter, to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. With COP26 planned in November, the pressure is on governments to meet their national commitments to decarbonize. But equally, the same pressure is on to address the current and also global COVID-19 crisis. What is clear is that 2021 will be critical for climate emergency and the COVID-19 recovery. Exactly, Jonathan. So the green transition at scale will require a lot of collaboration and finance clearly is going to have to pay, play a big part in that. So, for instance, one of the current debates is can we fund the COVID recovery through taxing carbon, for example? And on one hand, this could really start to change existing industries, encourage investments into innovation and possibly climate friendly technology. So this is all great. But as you can imagine, on the other hand, could taxing carbon just be another constraint for firms already really struggling in this environment? And look, there are already some really big shifts in finance. So the European Central Bank, for example, they've been urged to really decarbonize their almost 2.5 trillion euro corporate credit holdings. And Christine Lagarde, who's the ECB's president, she's pledged to make tackling climate change a major part of the central bank's strategy review. However, I do wonder how realistic is it for already struggling firms and industries to be subject to these new, like, heftier taxes? Yeah, that's a bigger question than ever right now, Kerry. There's no doubt about it. It is a very interesting question. It goes to the heart of the issues. How do you continue meaningful and sustainable decarbonization of the most polluting industries during this COVID-19 period and the recovery that hopefully will come? Actions need to be taken at corporate and company levels. And of course, you know, it's companies. They're the ones often struggling most during this crisis. So our dilemma today, can finance reduce pollution during the COVID-19 crisis? What exactly are the relationships between financing instruments and environmental pollution? What role should banks, corporates, and firms play in building a green post-COVID recovery? Well, our guests today have done some pioneering work in this field, showing the linkages between financial markets and green policies, specifically the real impacts of the financial crises on the transition to green. So our guests are the EBRD's Director of Research, Ralph de Haas, and the Associate Professor of Economics at Imperial College London, Ralph Martin. Both are joining us today via Zoom. Well, hello, Ralphs. This will be easy today with the names. Um, so my first question to both of you, what is your one minute take on the issue? Can finance still play a key role in decarbonizing during the COVID-19 crisis? Ralph de Haas, we'll start with you. Okay, thanks Gary, um, and thanks for, for having me. Um, well, I, th I think finance really has to play a role in the green transition. I don't think there's a way around that. Um, 
We know that there is a large number of countries that by now has pledged or politicians that have pledged to become net zero emitters of carbon by 2050 or earlier. Um, and we also know that green, the green transition will really involve uh, you know, a very large scale program of corporate investments. A lot of investments will be made, will need to be made in order to make um, firms greener producers. And most of these firms will not be able to finance that just from their retained earnings. So they will, they will not have the internal funding available to, uh, to make all of these investments. They will really have to rely on um, accessing either bank funding or um, equity, public equity or private equity in order to make those investments. So yes, um, uh, my, my one minute take would be that, would be that you know, clearly finance has a, a very crucial role to play. Ralph Martin, do you, do you agree with what Ralph DeHaas just said? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the only way how we can address this problem and decarbonize is through investment. I mean, it's not an option to just say, oh, let's not consume uh, carbon anymore. I mean, otherwise we have a revolution. So, so we need finance and as a consequence, the financial sector has to play a role. And um, I think, um, I mean, there, there are three main barriers here. Right? One is that uh, still we haven't priced emissions in the right way. So left to its own devices, investment is probably going in the wrong channels and there might be the danger of, of stranded investments. And you know, as, as we have shown in, in our recent research, there, there are other barriers uh, which have to do with uh, informational constraints and, and managerial constraints. And, and so we have to address those ones as well. And they can, I think they, they can both be on the side of the firms, that firms often are not aware of uh, you know, how they can achieve savings uh, while also addressing climate goals. And also they're not aware of opportunities they might be having in these new markets that are emerging. And I think there is a constraint potentially of banks not being aware of that and then not being able to finance these things in the way they should. Ralph de Haas, perhaps I could turn to you. I mean, you wrote a paper at the end of last year about a, a link between credit availability and the adoption of greener practices at firm level. Does it tell us then, give us any indication, how should we structure uh, the COVID-19 recovery to make sure it's a, it's a green recovery? Um, yes, no, that, that, that's a great point. I, I mean, the, the paper that you're referring to is uh, was joint work with Alex Popov at the, at the ECB. So. So what we were basically interested in is to find out whether there's a difference between banks on the one hand and equity markets on the other hand and their, and their ability to facilitate um, CO2 reductions by firms. Um, and so what we found using data from a large number of countries and, and a lot over the past 30 years is that you know, stock markets seem to have a bit of an edge in, um, in that sense. And the main reason for that is that equity funding is, is really well suited to um, fund risky um, uh, innovation and in particular green innovation. So we could actually pick that up in the data on, on patenting behavior. So we see when firms have easier access to stock market funding, um, they are more likely to engage in green research and development and, and come up with new inventions that then may help to reduce CO2 um, by those firms and those industries. Um, so overall, yeah, I think more emphasis on equity relative to bank debt and maybe debt in general would not be a bad thing in, in countries that are still very reliant on bank funds, including many of our countries of operation. Um, and there are ways of, you know, of, of getting there. There's, there's um, you know, ways to, to make tax systems more balanced between equity and debt, for instance. Um, so an example we discussed in the papers out of Belgium that introduced something called um, a notional interest deduction in 2006, which basically means that when firms 
issue equity in Belgium, they can deduct an amount from their profits that is similar to what they could have deducted if they would have issued debt. And uh, in that way, you can sort of balance your tax system so that's no longer excessively preferential towards debt versus equity. And so with you know, instruments like this, I think a lot of countries could actually make progress in tilting the financial system a little bit more um, towards equity. Um, and that, you know, I think there is a link with COVID there as well. You mentioned that at the beginning. I, I think what we see now is that there are these massive support packages to keep firms alive, um, which is, of course, good in the short term. Um, but it also means that a lot of these packages are actually debt, is debt funding. So we are pushing more debt on firms in order to keep them, uh, you know, hibernating, as some people call it. Um, you know, and the risk is, of course, that a lot of these or large proportions of these firms may actually end up as, as zombie firms. So firms that are, you know, that earn just enough, if you will, to continue operating and to service that debt, but that will not really be able to repay the debt. So again, also from a COVID perspective, I think having a financial system that is a bit more tilted to equity and less to bank funding maybe um, could potentially be very useful. I have to ask you, uh, Ralph, really as a follow-up then, do you think right now, there is depth in equity markets to be able to support such uh, investment if it was to to bear the burden of uh, of the way to help recover. You mean whether there's enough equity around to to do yeah. this? Um, well, in, in in some countries there is, but I think in in um, in our countries of operation, for instance, we see that there is a is a, a clear lack of an equity culture, and um, it's just very difficult for even for those firms that would be interested in, um, in getting external investors, inviting external investors into their firm. Um, there's just very little appetite, and um, uh, I think there are a variety of there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, you know, a very clear one is that in those countries where um, minority investors are not very well protected by the law, for instance, um, it's just very difficult to kick off an equity culture because nobody is willing to take that risk. Um, so there are, there are institutional changes that need to happen as well in order for these markets to, to take off. But I think in some countries, you know, really encouraging steps are being made. There are smaller countries where stock markets are actually working together. They're looking at cross listings. Um, so I think we do see that in some countries, these markets are gradually deepening um, and can, be, can become part of the, of the solution. So Ralph, sticking with you, so quick question on kind of the green agenda. So from your previous research, do you have any kind of ideas of ways that we can incentivize firms to not give up on their green agenda while they're you know, trying to recover and trying to start up again? Well, I mean, I mean, the paper that that Ralph, uh, you know, the other Ralph and I um, worked on together with, uh, I should say, with Helena Schweiger at, at EBRD and Mirabel Mulz at uh, Imperial College. Um, yeah, no, I, I think one way of interpreting the results in that paper is that just providing firms with a bag of money or with a loan is not going to be enough to actually sort of, sort of sustainably move them towards a greener, greener production structures. Um, and even, you know, even before we did that analysis, if we just look at some of the, uh, so this analysis is based on a large sample of firms. Um, even if we uh, just look at some of the questions that we ask these firms and we ask them basically, so why are you, uh, why are you not investing in energy efficiency, for instance? Um, about 14, 15% of the firms told us, well, we, we would like to, but we don't have the financial resources to do so. Um, so great. So those firms would potentially be helped if we would give them a um, credit or maybe if they would have better access to equity markets. But there were also about 60% of all the firms that just said, well, you know, this is not a priority for us. And that was before COVID, right? So even before the COVID crisis, 60% of the firms told us that they have 
other investment plans that take you know precedence over uh, investing in in green measures to make their production structure more efficient. So one can only imagine uh, you know what that number is currently. I, I would I would guess much much higher because of COVID. Um, so I think one thing that that will be very important is to really make sure that um, there's much more urgency among firm managers that um, um, they need to make these, these green investments. And that can be by, as Ralph earlier mentioned earlier on, uh, that can be by pointing out that they are leaving money at the table at the moment, that they are not you know, reaping savings that would actually be very beneficial to them just from a financial bottom line. Um, interestingly, in the paper, we also see that firm managers that have themselves experienced um, um, extreme weather events, and so um, that have repeatedly been exposed to, to extreme weather, and you know potentially have started to think more about the implications of, of climate change. Those are also the managers that are more amenable to making these green investments. So even at the very personal level, personal experience may actually um, be very important. Where, where do banks fit into all of this, Ralph Martin? Uh, how can they make a change? Because presumably they will have to step up in some way. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th I think one of the things we also showed in, in, in that paper is, and, and Ralph has shown this in, in his previous work, is that uh, especially in Europe, banks are still very much dependent, uh, firms are still very much dependent on, on their local banks. So I think th there might be a role for, for banks to, um, to make sure that uh, this knowledge is sort of disseminated about climate change. There might be an important multiplicator. Uh, and also, I mean, Ralph mentioned the management practices. I think, you know, banks, probably firms trust their banks more uh, than they trust other people. And so if, if this information comes from these local managers, they have sort of a, a relationship with, and, and if sort of the, 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 the bigger uh, bank branches and, and, and the the parent companies make sure that this knowledge is sort of disseminated. This could be an important role. But having said that, I mean, I think generally, you know, the COVID crisis is a very uh, special crisis. And so there, there is primarily a role uh, for, for governments at the moment to step in and, and uh, you know, and provide the necessary stimulus. So I wouldn't sort of overemphasize uh, the, the need for banks there, or, or the, you know, there was always the need for banks to, to help in this particular way. It hasn't, you know, gotten any more urgent through COVID. It's always been there. But uh, do you think that, sorry, just, just very quickly, do you think they recognize though that uh, there is an urgency now? The, the banks or the firms? Both, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, you know, we have come a long way since Copenhagen and uh, you know there has been have been initiatives by central banks now the European Central Bank you know is, uh, has has been very forthcoming in sort of uh, making um, uh, climate change uh, a big part of their strategy uh, in, in in the UK the same has happened so so I think uh, you know a lot of lot has happened I mean but uh, you know <laughs> it's still a long way we're still are mainly relying on fossil fuels and we have to you know within the next 20 years we have to come to a complete transformation of, of what fuels our economies so um yeah so ralph de haas building off of what ralph martin kind of just mentioned about governments and stimulus mm -hmm. so how can we design a stimulus package that kind of seizes the opportunities emerging from the coronavirus crisis which tackle these large-scale climate challenges 
Ooh, um, that's a big question. Um, so, so I think one one issue is that you know I think what's very important is that we build in that green aspect into the stimulus packages. So we shouldn't get into a situation where we sort of start to postponing all green action because we really want to tackle the COVID crisis uh, first. You know, I mentioned the numbers earlier on that you know we see that 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 green investments were already very low on on firms on firm managers' minds. Um, so we can we cannot afford to have that um, you know to make that to have that even less of a make that even less of a priority. Um, I think another issue I think is um, you know I think stimulus measures should also be selective. Um, so you know I think it's a bit of a harsh truth, but I think some firms actually may not be deserving to survive this crisis, and the people working in those firms and the capital employed in that firm may actually be much more useful in other parts of the economy. And so I think a risk of, of current stimulus packages, um, in particular because they have to be rushed out very quickly, and uh, they're, as I mentioned before, they're, to a large extent they are debt funded, so we are, we are sort of trying to you know, keep these firms alive. Um, but maybe in some cases, um, some firms, the less efficient ones and maybe the more polluting ones, um, there is this maybe the time to let go of those and see whether we can use those assets uh, in a more productive way somewhere else. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, building back better. Um, but I think before you rebuild something, sometimes you need to let go of the old structures. And I think a lot of the support packages are actually not doing that. They are keeping the old structure in place. And that means that, you know, one, once, you know, the economy would reopen again, mm -hmm. there's a risk that we just go back to normal, um, rather than having, uh, really having taken the opportunity to have rebuilt something from, um, from, you know, to some extent, the ashes of the, of the crisis. I think that's really an, a really interesting point. And so, Ralph Martin, then to build on that, if these you know firms who are less you know climate efficient, less you know have weaker technology, if they end up exiting the market, are we left with a better kind of pot to deal with? You know, firms that are able to tackle this crisis, firms that are more you know energy efficient, or at least are tilting that way, will we end up with just a better business environment in that in that way? Well, one would hope so, but I mean, I think also, you know, one point to make here, which which came out of a number of papers we have been doing even before the crisis, that there might be a unique opportunity there because a lot of these clean technologies, it turns out they are actually generating a lot of knowledge spillovers. And what that basically means is that, uh, you know, even, even if forget about climate change or any of this, moving the economy, pushing the economies to, towards these technologies could actually be a, a good growth policy. It's sort of, you know, uh, companies haven't been investing enough in these technologies yet because in part because of, you know, carbon is not properly priced, but also because the spillovers, the knowledge spillovers are not properly priced. And if the governments push uh, companies in that direction, that there is a growth benefit from that. And you know that's what we need. We need growth in the recovery. So here you have another policy. Even you know, uh, forgetting about climate change might sort of push us uh, into a direction that leads to more growth. So that that could be actually a sort of a win-win. So um, and in, in in that sort of space, there might be opportunity for maybe not necessarily the same companies that that are now going bankrupt, but for new companies and then to to generate new 
new revenues and new jobs. So it, it will be beneficial for the for the economy as a whole. An interesting point there, Ralph Martin, which is, you know, clean innovation, which you've written, it's absolutely crucial that both of you have written this, requires, will probably require some measure of government support going forward in order to, to provide uh, help to companies to do it. But whether governments will have the money to do it is a big question, isn't it? Once we've got through all these COVID stimulus packages and everything else that is keeping economies on life support, you know, does that leave governments very much money to do uh, the green agenda? Because if you think about how much they've spent on the COVID agenda, uh, that money would have gone a long way on the green agenda, of course. Yes, but uh, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I've I've been pointing out as well, it, it might also be a, a good opportunity to finally uh, lead to carbon pricing, which we have, you know, many people have been calling for many years to have sort of proper carbon pricing, and it has never really happened. But maybe now sort of, you know, within the sort of need of balancing the budgets and finding new ways of uh, of, of raising money, there might be an opportunity there to to eventually increase some of the the carbon that is still not priced. And you know, of course, it's a very delicate thing. You know, we, you know, as long as interest rates are still very low, I mean, I, I don't think there's you know that sort of big need to 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 sort of balance the books. But once you know the economy picks up and and interests go up again, it could be a sensible strategy to. Uh, to then move into carbon pricing. But I, I think, you know, what, what it could also be important, even before that, it could be important for governments to, to announce that that's what they're going to do. Because then even if, you know, having sort of the cash flow issues that would arise from that, we, we, companies know already that that's going to happen and they, they hopefully will sort of make their uh, investments accordingly so that we're not ending up with, you know, a lot of waste because of stranded assets. I think that's a great point. So Ralph Tahas, question for you. So has the COVID crisis had a positive structural effect on reducing pollution, kind of a sort of cleansing effect? And are you optimistic that such a permanent positive effect has materialized? Well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not particularly optimistic about that. I think. I think. Well, first of all, because I don't think the numbers support it. So, so there were the International Energy Agency last week uh, or the week before um, released some data on um, sort of CO two emissions in 2020. So what I found interesting is that in the first 11 months, um, there was a sharp decline in CO2 emissions. Um, so I think it was globally about 6%, in the US even 10%. Um, uh, and so that, that was related to the, to COVID, mostly to COVID crisis, partly also to um, you know, uh, weather patterns. Um, but in December, when a lot of countries actually already had started to um, you know, reduce the lockdown and, and reduce some of the measures that had been taken, we even saw we saw that CO two emissions actually got back to normal level, or even or even slightly above the 2019 level. So you know, and and the main reason for that is that you know traffic and transport um, actually started to pick up again. Um, so it really suggests that you know there hasn't been any structural changes. There's, everybody basically took a very long breath and didn't you know didn't produce much stuff. But as soon as the economy got relaxed again, people start to move around. People start to produce again. Um, and, and we see that CO2 emissions are, are you know, not just back to where they were a year before, but actually slightly, slightly higher. So that makes me you know, quite pessimistic that there has been this very structural cleansing effect. Um, um, and you know, maybe to, if you're a real optimist, you may say, well, maybe that may actually show up in the data a little bit later. 
uh, and that will be that will be great. I think you know one thing that makes me a little bit more optimistic is that that we know from from you know very different research that people and and, and companies as well can often be you know stuck in a bad equilibrium, and you have to really jolt them out of that equilibrium. And, and show them um, that they um, uh, that they can do the things more efficiently. Um, so I think a paper that I really like, um, which was published a couple of years ago in the QGE, the, one of the main economics journals, um, basically looked at what happened in London in 2014. So you may remember that in, in February that year, there was a, a couple of tube strikes. So the, the Metro, um, um, was on strike, and that meant that a couple of stations and a couple of lines were actually closed. So suddenly people, um, against their will, had to really start experimenting, experimenting and to find new routes to work. Um, and of course, that was a, for a lot of people a lot of hassle, but actually um, what the researchers that wrote this paper show using um, data from, from the, the oyster cards, so the travel cards that people used to move around in London, so about 5% of all the people um, actually discovered that for all these years they had been using the wrong route to work and that was actually a more efficient route to get to work. Um, and I think that is, I think there's a super interesting finding, um, but it also has broader implications. And I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, the fact that we have been all been part now of this experiment um, where we've had to work from home, we have to have, you know, basically everything we were used to doing in our life in a certain way, we are now doing differently. And you know, um, you know, like in the tube example, I guess 95% of what we will do after the crisis may go back to what we used to do. But then maybe that 5% where we actually discover that some things can be done more efficiently, we will just, we will just stick with it. Um, so I think there's a, a small, you know, glimmer of hope there. But I don't think so far there has been a, a structural change in the economy that once everything gets going again, so, suddenly we are super efficient. That is, I don't think that's going to happen. Let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems which are shaping our world. Uh, you can review us on iTunes, of course, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com and follow us on Twitter at ebrd. And let's pick up on something, Ralph, you were basically just pointing out, Ralph DeHaas, you were just pointing out that, you know, it's quite hard to get a, a real structural change, a real change in behaviours. Um, and I wonder, therefore, you know, this is really a question for both of you, but maybe Ralph DeHaas, you'd like to continue this thought. First of all, this is a question for both of you that we've heard often G7 uh, governments, all sorts of governments talking about decarbonisation, the need to decarbonise uh, billions of dollars worth of activities and assets. I mean, it shows how difficult that's going to be achieve, to achieve, doesn't it? Your, your comments just a, a few minutes ago show that getting that structural change, really reaching that target, you know, it's really tough. Is it feasible? The example you gave about the, the G7, I think that was the, um, the, the central bank governors. Central bank governors, it was, yeah. yeah. So I think that is very specifically about sort of trying to make the, the monetary policy of the, the, the system of Euro, the European system of central banks um, greener, if you will, by, uh, by changing the composition of the, the assets that um, the ECB holds on, a on its balance sheet or that, uses, that it uses as, as collateral. Um, so that is a, a, a more specific um, point there. Um, I think more generally, and that's a point Ralph made earlier on, I think it will be, it will be possible as long as the um, incentives are right. And I think the main incentive here will be carbon pricing. And that could be you know, a carbon tax or, or um, you know, a better emissions trading system. Uh, and, and Ralph may have much more um, to say about that. But I think we need to have you know, a really good incentive structure in place that really makes it 
more and more costly to actually use carbon in your production process. So without having that in place, we will continue you know, to interview firm managers and they will continue to tell us that it's not very high on their, on their agenda because you know, it's just not um, painful enough for them um, to produce while emitting a lot of carbon. So I think that is, that is the main thing. I think that needs to be um, sorted. Um, and then there's, I think, a bunch of other things that need to be done. I think on a very sort of, you know, simple pedestrian level, I think it's so, for a lot of people, it's still very unclear what exactly are green activities or what are green firms and what are brown firms and what's sort of in between. Um, so I think there's a need for much more green disclosure and, and reporting on sustainability um, or even for a global system where um, there will be, you know, global standards that, you know, everybody could look into and could compare firms, you know, what do they do and to what extent is that a green or a less green activity that will make it also much easier for banks, for instance, to explain whether their loan portfolio is green or relatively less green. Um, so I think that is, that is something that's, that is important. Um, the main thing, you know, and, and, and again, maybe Ralph may want to say more about it, is, is about getting the, the incentives right. And, and doing that is, is, carbon, is true carbon pricing. Ralph Martin. Um, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a formidable task, but, but I think there, there are a lot of things, uh, you know, that have happened over the, the last 15 years or so, or 20 years, that, that, that they can make you hopeful. I mean, I think it's phenomenal how much, uh, for instance, the, the, the prices of, of solar panels have come down and, and the efficiency of, of solar energy has improved and, and of wind energy, but maybe solar energy is just absolutely formidable. And, and we, we, we can see how it happened. You know, it, it happened first uh, by, by Germany giving, I mean, it was a kind of a price signal, right? Where you had these sort of uh, feed-in tariffs um, and a lot of entrepreneurial activity around it. You know, suddenly farmers became, uh, uh, renewable energy producers and all, all the rest of it and this transformed the market and then followed up by by a massive investment uh by china in in, in solar energy and you know that you know of course first of all transformed uh these economies in in many ways you know where a lot of renewable energy in germany and now increasingly in china uh, is sort of emerging but because i mean the important thing is you know is the is the is the r d and uh, the technology improvement comes from it. And, and so, you know, even our countries that uh, didn't have the carbon pricing will now have an incentive to adopt these technologies simply because they have become so cheap. So, you know, it's sometimes it's enough if they have these sort of strong systems and, and pricing schemes or whatever else in, in, in a couple of countries, and then it can spill over and it can spill over very quickly. I mean, now we have, you know, especially last, uh, last year, I mean, we repeatedly had most of the energy coming from renewables in the UK. And, you know, this, this is an amazing transformation. And, you know, just, just look out the road, you know, and now I, I'm sitting here next to the road, I hear a, an electric vehicle, you know, every, every, every 10, 10 minutes, I can, you know, I can, it's a different sound, you hear it very easily. And this, this is amazing, right? So, so I think it, you know, in, I mean, we, we know it's an S-shaped <laughs> curve very often with, with adoption of technology. So for a long time, it seems nothing has happened and then suddenly it happens very fast, right? So I think we, we have to keep that in mind that that's the kind of uh, process we are dealing with. And uh, I mean, in speaking, I mean, you mentioned earlier the, uh, you know, what, what has uh, COVID been doing and, you know, will, will COVID suddenly transform everything? And I think, and I share some of the pessimism of 
of of of the other <laughs> that yeah you know yeah initially there was sort of big drop in emissions but we're basically back to normal i think there's sort of a bit of a minor shift will there will come from that basically more people will work from home and that on net yes we're using a bit more power at home but on that we're saving on transport and that will be a, a net saving but i think the more subtle change might be in attitudes I mean, I think maybe that what the COVID crisis has shown to people is that sometimes the things scientists do and the, the things scientists say, you know, actually are true. And and um, and so maybe we should listen to them. We should listen to the scientists when they say, "Look, there, this is really a bad crisis." And if that changes the attitudes of, you know. A number of people in the population that might make a difference. I mean, actually, one of one of our recent research results is as well that uh, attitudes alone can make a big difference because um, you know carbon pricing is great, but attitudes independent of carbon pricing make a big difference. If enough people think that uh, you know this is important, then they will buy these products if they can. You know, if their budget allows it, even if the carbon pricing isn't there. And and, and this is you know, I mean, the sort of uh, uh, example of this kind of phenomenon, maybe the most famous one in recent years, has been the transformation that has come uh, for the uh, electric car industry from from Tesla, which basically was spurred by you know rich uh, Silicon Valley uh, billionaires realizing that climate addition is an issue and just liking these cars, and then the R and D that comes on 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 the back of that can lead a lot of the transformation that we need. Well, if there's two things we love on this podcast, it's um, scientists and facts, as well as optimism. So um, I loved everything that you just said there. Okay, so I have, a, I have a, clarific a clarification question for you, Ralph Martin. So in your paper, you study this question, you say, or the, the question is, does carbon pricing mitigate climate change at a firm level? And I think you arrive at the conclusion that it can be rather ineffective. Is that correct? And can you kind of explain that a little bit? I'm not quite sure why you think that. I mean, I think we, we have a number of papers where, where we show that it that it had an effect, you know, in, uh, in the UK and, and with the ETS as well. It, it clearly had an effect uh, on, on emissions. And uh, I mean, we just published a new paper where we show, yeah, it had an effect on emissions and it, it came through investments. Yes. So it's not just that firm sort of shut down, <laughs> but they they invest in the new technologies and that makes them more carbon efficient. So output didn't go down, uh, uh, efficiency improved. Um, so I think, uh, I, yeah, I think that's what our research shows. But, but we also see, I mean, most of the time that the carbon prices we have are, are not high enough. Uh, we, 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 oh, what, what many people think should the price be, and 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 we understand why why often they are not high enough because the it, it's it's a, it's a difficult uh, political climate. I mean, we've we've seen. I mean, now people have already forgotten about this because of COVID. But just before COVID, we had the gilets jaunes in 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 France, and this was a response to to a rather modest and and sort of you know even a, I think it was a revenue neutral proposal for carbon pricing. But it, you know, somehow the public opinion went against it and was very destructive. Mm -hmm. So politicians will be very worried about trying this. So, you know, I think we should push for carbon pricing. And, you know, of course, you know, the, the worry is always that it's sort of, it's it's regressive. And the, in particular, poor people, you know, uh, will sort of lose out. But I, I think 
you know, it's it, there's no sort of necessity in this. You can. It always depends on what you do with the revenue. If you, you know, use use the revenue to to help these poor people on net, they will be better off. It's just sometimes, you know, I mean, I think the big mistake in France, for instance, was that they first started ramping up the, the tax before they sort of had the rebate, uh, and and maybe the rebate wasn't sort of very well advertised. And of course, you know, we have to be uh, a big problem is, of course, that there are sort of vested interests that sort of uh, pollute uh, much of the debate. So we have to we have to be very much uh, aware of that as well. And then politicians have to implement that. But so that that creates limits for carbon pricing, I think. But uh, but it's, it's it's certainly effective. You know, I think that that many people, myself included, have have shown. Just before we turn our attention to what's happening in the EBRD regions, and I know Kerry wants to ask a question about that, uh, but let me just pick up on something you just said there, Ralph, about behaviours. You know, you heard you mentioned the Giojone example, which was around uh, citizens' behaviours when they're confronted with having to do something, or some citizens confronted with having to do something. But I wonder about what uh, happens when companies are confronted to do something, because, you know, increasingly you hear talk, obviously, they're worried about stranded assets. And that and fear is often a driver of behaviours, isn't it? So, so do you think that will force change? Because in the end, companies won't want to be left with investments in things that are just not worth anything. Well, hopefully, hopefully that that's what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, do you I see think it that, happening, though? Uh, well, you know, I, I think what we're, what we're seeing is increasingly serious people and and powerful people like central banks and uh, um, and, and and big businesses taking this as as a key part of their strategy, and uh, you know. Do the actions match is, the words though? Because we hear it, but we. I mean, not in all cases. I mean, it's it's also good. You know, there's a lot of greenwashing for sure. But but I think in in, in many cases it, it's genuine, and and there have been uh, important transformations in, in many businesses. Maybe just to to add to that, if I may, I, I think if um, you know, going back to the financial system, particularly to the role of banks, there is some evidence that you know after the the Paris Accord, actually banks became much more critical when they started to finance firms with assets that could potentially become stranded. So before 2015, if you, you see hardly any pricing differences, after 2015, you actually see that uh, you know, prices are going up. Um, so it, 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 firms have to pay a higher um, interest spread if they, if, they, um, if they borrow. And so one of the reasons of that is that banks have become more aware, partly stimulated by supervisors, I guess, that um, they have to be very careful with financing these firms with assets that can potentially become stranded. So that we, we, I think one does see movement um, in that sense. So Ralph, De Haas, so clearly, I mean, in this conversation, I, I think we've mostly talked about kind of Western countries, you know, developed nations. What, what about the EBRD regions? Does it does it hold true what we're talking about, or are there different nuances that we should we should mention? Well, you know, I think everything we talk about hold, talked about holds true for those countries as well. It's just you know all of it is just magnified by by um, a, a huge number in the sense that you know almost all of the growth in energy demand and in CO two emissions over the next three decades will actually come from emerging markets and and developing countries and and. Um, I think that is very important to keep in mind. So a lot of the things that we have discussed um, today um, apply not just to, to richer countries, but, but even more, I would say, to, uh, to countries that are still um, on a very steep growth path. Um, so 
I think one one you know maybe positive here is that um, of course a lot of, what a lot of these countries can do in general and have been doing in general is sort of copying technologies that have been developed elsewhere. And this is what Ralph was um, alluding to earlier on. Um, we know that once technologies are invented in uh, you know country A, they may actually diffuse over time to country B. And what we often see is that you know um, inventions and also green inventions and green R&D actually gets invented in let's say the US or in, in Europe, but then gets adopted by firms in other countries. Um, and so I think the, the, the positive here is that um, we actually know that banks, even though they are not very good in, in, in sort of financing, you know, frontier, cutting edge research and development, they are actually very good at financing, you know, stuff that has been shown to work somewhere else. So they're very good in helping firms to adopt technologies from, from, from elsewhere. Um, and um, so in that sense, the fact that, you know, we have these countries where a there's a large technological gap that gap can be plugged by to some extent by importing greener technologies from abroad um and you know these countries are heavily bank based that is you know to some extent a lucky coincidence because we know that these banks actually can help with um, um you know importing helping firms to import these technologies and implementing them and become greener as a result of course in the longer term we would hope that at least some of our countries of operation move beyond that stage and actually become true innovators themselves and that's what we see in, in, in some of uh, some countries like Poland for instance um, um, already happening but in, in other countries it will be very important that we make sure that the financial system and in particular banks actually help firms as much as possible to adopt greener technologies as quickly as possible. Okay, let's try and draw this conversation to a conclusion then as we come to the end of the podcast. And, and I, I suppose the big question is then, how do we put climate finance at the heart of uh, the recovery that is going to go on? Um, are there some practical steps you would recommend governments to take uh, as next steps? What would be the next steps that not just governments, but everyone should take if we're to have action on this? Ralph Martin. Well, I think what, what, what Ralph just mentioned in the end, you know, to 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 focus on new technologies. I mean, I think generally um, the, uh, this is a big transformation and there are great opportunities for countries and, and also firms which might have been laggards to, to become the new leaders. So I think what I would encourage and especially uh, countries in Eastern Europe is to, to think be aware of this and then think long and hard. So what could uh, their, where, in which field could their country have a comparative advantage in this new wave and then build sort of an industrial strategy around that and sort of complement that with, with carbon pricing and, and sort of, you know, R&D funding initiatives, as well as initiatives to, uh, to make sure that uh, the less well-off and the sort of smaller companies are not left stranded, so to speak. Ralph to Hass. Next steps. Um, well, maybe let me reiterate two of the things that I mentioned before. So I think thing one is that um, often providing funding to firms uh, by itself may not be enough. And you know, providing firms with funding and management support um, and management consultancy services may actually work, work better. So the two may reinforce themselves. So you give people or you give firms the, the money that they need to make an investment, but you also help them with you know, choosing what investments may be the right investment for them uh, in order to become greener producers. So I think that combination of finance and, and advisory services, if you will, um, I think is, is, is important. 
uh, and a very concrete step that governments, but also development banks can um, um, continue to do or maybe do more of. Um, and, and the other thing, the other thing that I mentioned earlier on is about you know being about be trying to be you know selective in who you support. So I think there's a there's a difficult equilibrium to strike between acting fast and providing support to everybody in order to prop up um, the economy in the in the short term. Um, but at the same time, making sure that we're not creating sort of a, a generation of zombie firms that is actually holding us back in the green transition because they remain alive or half alive, but they also remain sort of very, very high energy consumers and, and high emitters in the, in the meantime. Um, so from a green transition perspective, it may be, you know, unfortunately better that some of those firms actually, you know, go under and are replaced um, um, by, by more efficient producers. So I think that is another sort of, you know, thing to keep in mind um, when designing um, COVID response packages. All right. Thank you both very much, uh, Ralph Dehass and Ralph Martin. I think there's a lot uh, further uh, to go, clearly, with this uh, whole issue. We're going to be discussing it again and again as we see the shape of the recovery. We'll be back to you to, uh, no doubt, uh, pick your brains on this again. Uh, thank you very much. You have been listening to Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. You can review us on iTunes. We love to hear from you as well. You can email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com. Follow us on Twitter as well, by the way, at ebrd is our handle and our dilemma today that we've been talking about was uh, can finance reduce the pollution in the times of COVID-19 as I say uh, this is something we're going to return to I suspect many many times in the months and years ahead uh, I'm Jonathan Charles together with Kerry Law we've been looking uh, you know enjoying all of this but of course what we really look forward to is hearing from you uh, we want to hear what you think about this fascinating subject do get in touch green is very much at the heart of what we do uh, and we're interested to know uh, how you think think this agenda can be taken forward. Stay safe. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time. <laughs>